from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Sean Witt, the Audience Development Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide non-for-profit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's here with an update on an investigation into the Oklahoma School of Science and Mathematics, a state-funded high school for the academically advanced juniors and seniors. Jennifer, what's the update? The school very recently um, at a uh, board of trustees meeting um, discussed two teachers that we've written about um, that were accused of um, harassing students and there, we talked to several alumni and, and other folks that had concerns about these two teachers. And the news is that they are going to be allowed to retire. So this comes after your investigation revealed the school's long history of quietly resolving claims of sexual harassment. What complaints were raised about these two teachers in particular? Right. So there were um, different complaints, um, mostly from students who had had them um, in class over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, inappropriate comments is what a lot of the complaints were about. Um, one teacher in particular, uh, Mark Lee, had complaints from students as well as uh, teachers who attend the school for like a summer training session. Um, they do like surveys after the session and there were a whole bunch of comments made by um, teachers who said, you know, there were a lot of inappropriate jokes, um, comments, um, things that made them very uncomfortable. And, you know, years went by and he was still running that training, still working there. Nothing had changed. And so um, that's kind of how um, how this investigation into their um, uh, harassment and their actions had started. These two teachers are not being fired. Is that correct? That's right. Um, I know several folks say that just really perpetuates kind of the problem, uh, you know, that they've seen at the school um, is that the, um, you know, folks with the, you know, the misbehavior um, get to retire, resign with dignity. And then, um, you know, as we reported a couple of months ago, um, you know, at least nine or 10 or so women have either quit due to the um, environment at the school and this, um, you know, toxicity that they had to deal with, or they were fired for filing complaints. Has anybody representing the school addressed this situation publicly at all? No. The Board of Trustees held a meeting recently. Um, there was an item on the agenda about these two teachers, uh, Kurt Bachman and, and Mark Lee, um, but they did not discuss it publicly. They discussed it very briefly in a closed session um, and came back out and took no action. And some of the former students you've interviewed for these stories, what was their reaction to it? Right. So I did talk to um, a couple of former students after uh, this news came out uh, just to kind of see what their reaction was. Um, it's it's a little bit bittersweet, I would say. I mean, on the one hand, they are um, they are glad that these teachers will no longer be there. They feel like students will be safer and it will be a better environment specifically or especially for female students and LGBTQ students who really took the brunt of this harassment, according to, you know, the folks I've interviewed. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, one student, Deanie Betts, who I've talked to, um, you know, she just wants the school to come out and make a statement. You know, she just wants... Um, the the president or somebody in leadership to say, you know, I'm sorry this happened, we'll do better. 
And that so far hasn't happened. There's a former employee, Kelly, uh, who is also suing the school. Is that right? Yes, she's suing the school. Um, Her lawsuit is ongoing. Um, She worked at the school um, in the, like the administration and, um, you know, says she was um, fired and due to, you know, a lot of this um, ongoing sexual harassment that was not resolved um, or handled in in an appropriate way. Um, and she feels like she was retaliated against in that lawsuit. We're, we're following that. Okay. Is there anything else you're still following about OSSM? You know, uh, one of the main things, um, and this sounds almost kind of trivial, but they have never had an employee handbook. Um, and that's one thing we've reported in our stories um, that a lot of folks has ra- have raised as a big issue. You know, it's really hard to hold employees responsible for their actions when you don't have a policy saying you can't do certain things. Um, and so, you know, they did um, put together a committee of um, board members that are working on resolving or improving some of their personnel um, and, and uh, you know, practices and policies and things like that. And they are working on that handbook. So we're watching that as well as um, any other updates or, you know, any kind of um, action that they decide to take. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for a free weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Whitney Bryan has spent the year investigating Oklahoma jails and the people who died in their custody. She's here to tell us about people who died and how they ended up in jail in the first place and what killed them. Whitney, what inspired you this year reporting? Well, Sean, a lot of our listeners probably remember some reporting that we did nearly a year ago now on two women who died in the Cleveland County Jail. That's Shannon Hanchett and Catherine Milano. Both women were waiting on mental health evaluations and assessments at the jail when they died last December. And, you know, Shannon Hanchett especially, she was a 38-year-old mother of Two, she was very involved in the community. Um, she was fairly healthy until she had a mental health crisis that got her arrested, landed her in the jail. And then 12 days after she arrived there, she died um, very suddenly is what her friends and family are telling me. So that story really, um, I think, stuck with a lot of our readers and frankly, with with me as well. And that started me down the path of investigating who else died in Oklahoma jails and how often people in crisis are dying. So that's what's got the ball rolling for you. What did you end up finding? Well, we found out that more than half of the people who died in Oklahoma's jails last year died from untreated mental illness or substance abuse conditions. So I found that 53 people who died in the custody of a jail across the state of Oklahoma last year, 28 of those people died from either suicide or overdose. Now, in the case of Shannon Hanchett, who who was one of those people who died last year, she did not die of suicide or overdose, but she did die of untreated mental illness, uh, obviously waiting on uh, one of those assessments. So we know that it's it's actually more than half of these folks, um, but we had enough information to report specifically that it was, you know, at least half of them. And I spoke to mental health advocates who said there's a there's a lack of humanity inside these jails that's contributing to the care that these individuals are not receiving. 
So you personally created a database for everyone that died in an Oklahoma jail last year and which jail was responsible for their care. Does the state not track these deaths? Well, that's a great question. So this this line of reporting started with a suggestion from me to our editor saying, hey, I'll just pull a state database. We'll analyze that and we'll get some answers. And as usual, it was not quite that simple. So what I learned is there are three state agencies that are charged with tracking the deaths of jail detainees. Uh, I reviewed all three of those databases, and what I found was that the state health department, they get their information directly from jails. Jails are responsible for reporting deaths of inmates, as well as some other things like serious injuries and, um, and destruction of property to the state health department. But as I reported earlier this year, in jails like Pottawatomie County, for instance, the jails are not reporting those things to the health department. So they were missing a lot of deaths in their database. The medical examiner, they also track these deaths. However, I found after an analysis of their data that their the folks there at the medical examiner's office who are reporting these things, who are checking the boxes, you know, in the system for when it's a jail death, they're all doing it a little bit differently. It seems like there's not a lot of consistency across the board on how they're tracking these and how they're marking these deaths. So again, several people were missing from that database. And then the district attorney's council, they also have to report these deaths to the federal government, actually. They only reported 26 of the 53 deaths that we found to the feds last year. So all of these databases are incomplete. None of them matched. And we just decided we needed to create a more consistent uh, collection of these folks. Has this always been a problem in Oklahoma or is this a new issue? Well, that's a tricky question to answer because, you know, we don't have reliable databases. However, what I did do is I took the medical examiner's database and I analyzed that for the past five years to try to get an idea of what was happening. They had the most complete database of the three. So in analyzing only their jail deaths, we found that jail deaths in general across the state, they've actually doubled over the past five years. So that would suggest that the number of people dying in mental health crisis also has increased over that time frame. So we do know that we're seeing more deaths in these facilities. And we do know from folks inside who work inside these facilities that the number of people with mental illness and substance use conditions has increased as well. You met with the family of a young girl who died at the Seminole County Jail this summer. Tell us about her. Yeah, Lena Corona's story is, is really heartbreaking and I think um, really explains kind of the big picture of what's happening to some of these folks. So uh, Lena was 18 years old and she had uh, bipolar one disorder. So that caused her to hallucinate. She went into psychosis frequently um, before she was arrested. She, she really struggled and she was on medication. She'd been hospitalized many times for her mental illness, but she often stopped taking her medication as many of these folks do when they're released from the hospital. She didn't like the way it felt. Her symptoms increased, and throughout the summer, she continued to degrade. In July, she actually hallucinated to the point of seeing what she called dark spirits 
um, in her father. She thought he was trying to harm her and her family. So she fought back and she ended up stabbing him with a, a piece of glass that she found in the house. So she was arrested for assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. She was taken to a hospital first by police who had her hand treated. She had a cut there from the stabbing, but then the hospital released her back into police custody and they took her to jail. She spent about five days in the jail in psychosis. And on that fifth day, she hanged herself in a cell. She died by suicide. Did anybody with the uh, Seminole County Jail speak to you and what did they say? Well, they would not speak to me. Their attorney um, did respond to me um, with a request I had made for some documentation and some video of Lena's final hours there in the jail. Uh, we, her family and I wanted to know if they were providing her any sort of treatment, uh, if they had even assessed her condition, if they were providing medication, you know, anything like that. Um, but they are, they are refusing to answer any of my questions. They provided her booking sheet, which didn't tell us much other than that she was in fact in psychosis when they booked her into the jail and that they could not do um, a proper assessment that's required when you book someone in uh, to catch things like mental illness. So they obviously knew something was wrong there. The family had been calling and giving them information about her condition, but the jail uh, was not willing to answer any questions or, you know, cooperate with us in terms of, of giving us more information about her care there. So would any jail official speak to you for this story? We did talk to a couple of jail officials, yes. So uh, they say generally that these folks, folks like Lena, who are in psychosis, people who are in crisis, should not be in the jails. Tulsa County Sheriff, he's been very vocal about this topic uh, for several years now. He says people in need of mental health and substance abuse treatment should be in treatment hospitals or rehab programs, not in jails. The Sheriff's Association director, he echoed that, saying jails set up as a temporary holding facility should not be responsible for these folks' care. They Jails basically are triaging these people. They're not trained or equipped to actually treat the conditions they have. I did talk to one jail director, though, Reese Lane. He works at the Payne County Jail in Stillwater. And, you know, he agrees with those sentiments, but he said, you know, until the system changes, uh, jails can and should be doing more to help folks in their care and to mitigate, you know, these the degrading of these folks. He brings in counselors. He's hired a psychiatrist on staff. He partners with nearby mental health facility um, who comes into the jail and provides treatment to his detainees in need. Most of those partnerships um, are exactly that, collaboration. So they're not really costing him much money. And he said, you know, the most important work he's doing is focusing on treating detainees more humane. When jailers realize that someone, this is someone's child or sibling or parent, it really changes the way his staff cares for these people and improves, you know, their um, ability to survive behind bars. Thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's coverage on Oklahoma jail deaths, as well as her work on Oklahoma's most vulnerable people on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. 
His latest story examines how much outside groups spent to influence Oklahoma voters in 2023. Keaton, could you explain to the listeners what outside groups are and how they regulated differently with the candidates? So outside groups are, it can be a politically involved nonprofit or uh, a state question campaign, uh, essentially uh, a group that is not like a candidate directly running for office that is is seeking to, to influence the outcome uh, of an election. So state ethics rules cap contributions to candidates at $3,300 per election cycle. Uh, there's not that cap for outside groups. Uh, so we can see some some pretty large donations and, and amounts of money coming out of them. How much outside money was spent in 2023 and where did most of it go? Around $2.3 million uh, was spent, which is uh, down pretty significantly from last year. Of course, last year we had uh, the midterm election this year, uh, a few notable races, but not uh, as many elections, uh, of course. Uh, but of that $2.3 million, most of it was spent on the state question A20 recreational marijuana question that, that appeared on the ballot in March. Who are some of the biggest contributors to the Yes on 820 campaign? It was mostly some local and national groups that support criminal justice reform. One of the big proponents of the question we're pushing were uh, a, a part of the initiative that would basically streamline the expungement of certain marijuana offenses. Um, so there are a lot of groups like the the ACLU, uh, the Schusterman Foundation, uh, some some organizations that, that were supportive of the question because of that uh, criminal justice reform element. What about the uh, opposition campaign? Of the amount of money raised in 2023 for the, the state question, about $2 million, um, believe about 85, 90% of that was for the yes campaign. Um, the remainder 10 to 15% was for the, the no campaign. Um, that was mo- mostly some uh, state and local business advocacy organizations like the, the state chamber of Oklahoma um, and some individuals that were, that were funding it. Uh, of course, ultimately that question was defeated. Um, but yeah, mostly some, some local groups uh, opposing that. Did we see any dark money flow into any of the legislative races in 2023? Yeah. So we had, um, a few special elections for some, some vacant seats that, that came up this year. Um, and the most notable instance of, of dark money coming into that was in the October 10th primary for the vacant Senate seat in Senate district 32 in Lawton. Um, there was around $250,000, spent from from outside groups in that opposing uh, candidate in the Republican primary, Dusty Devers, uh, who's a a pastor and and pretty staunch conservative from Elgin. Um, He ultimately won the nomination in in the the election for the seat uh, earlier this month, but there was a pretty notable amount of, of money from outside groups spent in that Republican primary. Uh, why is this trend of increased outside money spending concerning to some lawmakers and voters of advocacy groups? Uh, I think the concern just stems from the the rate of increase of the amount of money that's that's being spent. Uh, of course, after the the Citizens United decision and, and Supreme Court decision in 2010, uh, allowing uh, basically affirming that this sort of spending is is free speech and legal. 
Um, there's been a, a notable increase. Uh, it's continued to rise. And uh, I think there, there are some groups that are concerned about uh, the information that's being put out there and the amount of it. And is it is it misleading voters? Is how much of it is, is inaccurate? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what is is maybe proposed in in the upcoming session. Could we see any bills on this matter considered during the upcoming legislative session? So there, there's a possibility. There's uh, Governor Stitt created a campaign finance and election reform task force in November that uh, he says will look into issues of election fairness and uh, campaign finance and, and that sort of thing. I imagine some of it is stemming from his own experience, um, maybe motivation for creating the task force stemming from his experience running last year where, where there were tens of millions of dollars of dark money in, in the governor's race. But uh, that, that task force is, is supposed to release a report of recommendations on January 15th. Uh, the bill filing deadline for the the next legislative session is January 18th. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if anything comes from that. How can listeners track election spending in Oklahoma? You can go to guardian.ok.gov and uh, there's uh, an interactive tool where you can, can sort by contributions, by campaign, um, all of that stuff. It's a, it's a very useful tool. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for his free weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Sean Witt. Thanks for listening. Well, friends, it's that time of year. November and December is our big fundraising push at Oklahoma Watch. We are a 501c3 nonprofit independent news organization that brings you investigative and explanatory reports from all over Oklahoma. And in November and December, we have an opportunity to triple any donations that come our way. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar, and this year we're delighted to say the Arnall Foundation here in Oklahoma is doing the same thing. So any donations at all. Every dollar we get in turns into $3, which helps ensure our success in 2024 so we can keep bringing you all that in great investigative work. If you'd like to donate and support the cause, if you enjoy the podcast, our website, our newsletters, our radio pieces, please visit our website, oklahomawatch.org. Click on the Support Us tab on the menu and know that every dollar you are able to give is going to be tripled. That's also true if you make a year-long pledge. If you pledge $10 a month, that counts as $120 toward the matching gift. So your $10 a month turns into $360. Multiply that out any way that makes sense to you. We rely on the support of our readers and listeners and greatly appreciate your help. Thanks for listening. Newsmatch runs through December 31st. We greatly appreciate every bit of support.